0: James I is the homosexual king whose favourite son dies and is succeeded by his second son, Charles, an aesthete incapable of ruling. Charles I goes to war against his own people, loses and is executed. His son, also Charles, gets crowned king in Scotland, but exiled, holds court in France. England, under Oliver Cromwell, meanwhile, is still a monarchy in all but name. When Cromwell dies, Nobody knows what to do. It's short on options, Charles II is restored. But he has no legitimate children. And unlike Henry VIII doesn't divorce his queen, the heir is his brother, a bigoted and narrow-minded Roman Catholic. When he comes to the throne, he turns everyone against him, and he's driven out and replaced by his Protestant daughter, Mary, and her Dutch husband, William of Orange. Mary tragically dies and William knows going to James II's younger daughter, Anne. She also fails to have issue and the Stuarts are extinguished as a royal line. How's that? 14 lines, everything you need to know. Well, this breathless soap opera was played out in just a hundred years in an array of buildings that span Europe from Scotland via Denmark, Holland and Spain to England. Some of the buildings were extremely unusual and my series this year will focus on the contradictions and complexities of housing the Stuart monarchs in a series of makeshift and often unexpected places. And tonight I am starting with King James I, whose attitude to architecture and his own accommodation was unusual, to say the least. Well, 16th century Scotland was a turbulent place. Divided by a jagged topography, riven by religion, fractured by inter-Clan blood feuds, and threatened by foreign military intervention, leading barons were stabbed poisoned, shot and blown up as factions jostled for power. As a result, baby James VI, born in June 1566 and crowned at the tender age of 13 months, was placed under secure guardianship at Stirling Castle, which you see here. It was impregnably sighted on a volcanic crag, a safe distance from Edinburgh. This building was, for 12 years, the young King James VI's home. It must have often seemed like imprisonment, as his guardians fended off various attempts to seize him from rooms which, although magnificent, retain to this day their iron window bars. And uh, he was... uh, Uh, kept in the royal palace here and these windows here and the windows in the front there are all still barred um, to this very day. And in this building, uh, James received a harsh, demanding and thorough education, learning Latin, he claimed in later life, before he could even speak Scots. He amassed in his schoolroom a substantial library, which wasn't just a, a princely ornament, it was the foundation of his deep scholarship, his love of debate, and disputation. In March 1578, the 12-year-old king announced his intention to accept the responsibility of government in his own person. And in September 1579, accompanied by many nobles and several thousand horse, he made his way to Edinburgh, uh, where he made a triumphal entry, where after a tour of the capital city, he made straight for Holyrood House. Now, it had been King James IV, who reigned between 1473 and 1513, who had added a royal palace to the Abbey of Holyrood just outside Edinburgh. And in 1528, James V had embarked on a redevelopment of his father's palace with the construction of this, a great free-standing tower of two storeys raised up on a vaulted basement. Here is a plan of it, and you will see that it essentially comprised two rooms, an inner and an outer chamber, one on the first floor uh, for the king and one on the floor above, identical, for the queen. And this sort of compact, fortified tower lodging, which may have been appropriate for a teenage king fearful of kidnap, was not suitable for a 23-year-old monarch who was marrying a French princess. And so James V, in the 1530s, constructed a splendid new palatial range. Uh, Here's the tower um, in which um, he was to uh, set his great outer chambers. The facade of it, in fact, owned a debt to the great brick-built palaces of the Tudors, places like Greenwich and, and, and Hampton Court. But Unlike in England, the royal lodgings were entered from a staircase in the inner court. So here's the inner court, excuse the slightly scrappy plan. But you see there's, there's a, a big staircase that led up to one, two, three chambers and then the tower lodgings which, uh, had, belonged to, um, uh, which had belonged to his, his, his father. Um, so um, the... Uh, This this palace at at Holyrood House was the place to which um, James VI uh, went um, when he um, entered uh, uh, um, Edinburgh for the first time um, under his own steam as uh, as king. Soon after the uh, adult court for James VI was established in 1580, discussions began in earnest about his marriage. Now, of course, royal marriages um, were international dynastic alliances in which countries uh, established preferential trade links, military alliances, and acquired diplomatic leverage. While James could expect a substantial dowry from an international match, there was uh, rather a, a concern about whether Scotland could actually financially sustain the household of a queen. Uh, An English observer wrote that James had neither plate nor stuff to furnish one of his little half-built houses, which are all in great decay and ruin. His plate, he said, is not worth a £100. He has only two or three rich jewels. His saddles are of plain cloth. In fact, this uh, observer noted, and I quote, how a queen can be here maintained, for there is not enough to maintain a king. So... Although one of the options was a marriage to a French princess, which would have helped cement the old alliance with France and brought a huge dowry into Scotland, the alternative match was with Princess Anna, the younger daughter of King Frederick II of Denmark. Um, Here is Denmark. Now, although this doesn't seem much of a contest, a, a Danish princess... In relation to a French one, we have to remember that Denmark um, at this period was not the Denmark of today. Uh, the kingdom covered most of Norway, much of Sweden, uh, and Schleswig-Holstein. And Schleswig-Holstein brought the uh, the accolade of being one of the electors of the Holy Roman Empire. And so uh, the king of Denmark was also an imperial prince. And because they controlled access to the Baltic, they were able to take tolls from the shipping that came through and it made Denmark an exceedingly uh, rich kingdom. So I think mainly in the expectation of relief from those Danish tolls uh, the merchant classes of Scotland were great champions of a match with Denmark and it was ultimately this match that James uh, himself favoured because Anna who was born in 1574 uh, at this time was only 14, um, eight years younger than himself. She was tall, she was blonde, she was good-looking, she was Protestant. What more could you want in a woman? So on the 20th of August, uh, 1589, in Copenhagen, James and Anna were married by proxy in a civil uh, ceremony. Um, James, uh, receiving this news, launched himself into preparations uh, in, uh, in Scotland. It is 738 nautical miles from Copenhagen to um, Edinburgh, to Leith, in fact. And this should have taken the 16 Danish ships conveying uh, the Princess uh, and her trousseau some five days to get to Scotland. And so, believing them to have left on the 1st of September, James expected to meet his uh, new wife by the end of the week. But 15 days later, news arrived that although the flotilla had sailed... No one knew where it was. And so uh, James, uh, crushed by anxiety, sent out a ship to try and find them. Uh, Eventually it did find uh, the the princess, uh, sheltering um, in the southern tip of Norway, having hit some terrible storms, and uh, the princess and the Scottish ship went back to Oslo. Uh, So James, uh, frustrated, impatient, annoyed, made a secret plan to go himself and meet his wife in Oslo. Secret, secrecy was a bit difficult, because he had to prepare five ships and Leith. Um, but anyway, he jumped, he jumped aboard, and it wasn't long before he arrived in Oslo. He met his wife, um, his 14-year-old wife, um, and uh, uh, soon after, uh, Christian IV of Denmark the King uh, and his council of regency, because the king was actually only 12 years old, um, invited uh, James uh, and his wife to come and stay with their court. Well, the situation of Cronenberg El- um, Castle at Elsinore, for those of you who've been there, is completely unforgettable. Now, there's quite a lot of later construction around here, but this is the castle in the middle uh, which James uh, I um, turned up at. It's, uh, it's on this peninsula completely um, dominating the um, straits through which the Baltic um, shipping, the navigatable artery that the the Baltic shipping has to go through. The castle had been built in the um, 1420s, um, basically to enforce the dues um, that were charged. And um, although it had been a military installation until um, the 1570s, it had been transformed by Queen Anna's father, Frederick II, into a great palace which you see uh, on the screen here. Frederick had been fascinated by architecture and he had recruited craftsmen and designers from Germany and Flanders to create a great palace. You entered it through these great Renaissance style uh, gateways um, and the palace was arranged around the inside of a a courtyard. Uh, There was a great uh, hall inside, 62 metres long, and beneath this at its east end was The palace chapel. These are the only two rooms that survive uh, in the building now from James's time because there was a terrible fire that destroyed um, the rest of them. Um, The royal lodgings uh, were situated in a range down the back here. This is the great hall, the great hall is here. The king's lodgings terminating in this amazing tower here, which the king could um, stand on and look out over the sound and see the the ships being taxed as they went past, and the queen's lodgings ending in in a tower on this side and all of this had been built virtually without financial constraint because Frederick changed the shipping toll from a charge per vessel to a percentage of cargo value and you can see there the ships going through the sound and this uh, released an incredible resource for him to build this amazing um, palace Um, and attracted all the best designers from Northern uh, Europe. In fact, to ice the cake, Frederick had the whole of the outside of the castle uh, cased in white sandstone, and the roof tiles were replaced by sheet copper that he kept um, um, polished. So it was a really spectacular place. And it was here, in this palace, that James I spent um, two months enjoying his brother-in-law's hospitality, and uh, in particular, his brother-in-law's cellar. Um, and uh, eventually uh, nursing his hangover he sailed to Scotland with his bride. I'll come back to why this is so important in just a minute but let's now translate ourselves to uh, Scotland. Now we don't really have enough evidence to create an accurate annual itinerary to show where James and Anna travelled through um, Scotland Um, but we do know that James went on progresses rather like um, Elizabeth I did through um, uh, her uh, lands and he often um, hunted through the season, moving between his own houses and those of his uh, courtiers. And hunting was absolutely James I's uh, passion, obsession actually. A French visitor in 1584 remarked, he likes hunting above all the other pleasures in the world, remaining there at least six hours together, chasing all over the place with loosened rein." But like um, Elizabeth I, James' preference was to stay at the residences of the nobility rather than his own uh, houses. But we should just very briefly consider uh, a couple of his own houses other than the two I've already mentioned, which are Holyrood House um, and Stirling. So there was Lynn Lithgow, uh, which was the oldest of James's regular residences here. Started in the 1420s, It is a massive uh, quadrangle the huge great hall, rather like that one in Denmark that we've just been looking at, and three chambers, one, two, three, outer chamber, sort of uh, throne room, and a bed chamber. And then there was Falkland Castle, um, which uh, much less uh, survives of and we don't really have a, a plan of it. Um, and um, this was a hunting lodge where he regularly passed much of the summer. So, between them, Stirling, Linlithgow, Holyrood House, Falkland plus the Queen's own palace at Dunfermline comprised the architectural setting of the Scottish court. That court before James's marriage was an all-male institution in which almost anybody with an official position had direct access to the King. Because the architectural unit of his life was just three rooms and you've seen that both at Linlithgow, and at the plan I showed you of Holyrood House, um, there was a very uh, tight, very close, uh, and very crowded environment. All 24 of the king's uh, gentlemen of the bedchamber had access to his bedchamber the whole time, together with four varlets and three pages. In the more private closet, which was the room beyond the bedchamber, there were two gentlemen who kept the door and one or two more were in um, uh, attendance. And the King's uh, Lord Great Chamberlain, who was also the first gentleman of the bedchamber, had the right to sleep in the King's bedchamber and to dress him and undress him every day. Anna of Denmark was appalled at the free and easy access to the court, and in particular to James's person and tried to persuade James to create a more private chamber, admitting fewer people and people only by invitation. In 1591, reforms were instituted to reduce the number of gentlemen uh, and members of the Privy Council in an attempt to create a more disciplined environment. But the regulations were flaunted, and access to the king was still fluid. And part of the problem was that the wages of the king's guards, who were meant to keep people out of the inner rooms, were always in arrears, and they didn't police the rules of access uh, properly as a result. Now, like uh, Queen Elizabeth I, James essentially lived in mid-16th century royal houses constructed by his forebears. Unlike Elizabeth I... Uh, Several of these buildings have survived to this day because, of course, they were abandoned after 1603 when James came south. As a result, the physicality of James I's world in Scotland is much more real for us today than it is for Queen Elizabeth. Barely one of her great chambers survives in any of the uh, royal palaces that we have uh, today. Elizabeth certainly struggled to maintain the vast number of houses that had been left to her by her father. But her principal residences were essentially in very good repair. In contrast, the state of Scottish royal residences in 1600 was extremely poor. Both financial records and the uh, reports of travellers paint a picture of extreme neglect and decay. In 1583, it was thought that Linlithgow uh, might actually fall down if money weren't spent on propping uh, it up. The prediction was not wrong, because in 1600, that is exactly what happened. And this is um, a plan that shows the whole of this area here, which is this area here, um, literally just collapses These are the private rooms um, uh, of the king, just completely felt bits. Um, A visitor in 1598 thought Falkland was, and I quote, an old building and almost ready to fall, having nothing in it remarkable. And Dunfermline Abbey, which was the Queen's uh, house, was in such poor condition before uh, Anna of Denmark rebuilt it in 1599 that she was too ashamed to receive foreign ambassadors there. Uh, Stirling was also in bad order, but because it was the royal nursery house Uh, where the royal children were kept, the principal lodgings were in slightly better repair. Holyrood House, the best uh, kept of all the residences, uh, was, uh, according to an English observer in 1600, uh, altogether ruinous, an observation, I think, that must have been accurate, given that, uh, if you look in the accounts, that year, some £1,300, a vast sum of money, was spent on emergency repairs. So the parlous state of the royal houses in Scotland was partially due to a chronic lack of money. But actually, we have to confront the fact that repairing them was simply not one of James's priorities. His cultural interests were essentially intellectual. He was a poet, a theologian and a political theorist. And it was here that his interests lay rather than in the visual arts. There is in fact no real evidence that while King of Scots, he was specifically interested in architecture other than it being a necessarily magnificent setting for his rule. I spent some time uh, describing James's stay in Denmark. And it's tempting to think that this must have inspired him some way, because it's a very very rare thing for a monarch to go and spend a long time in another country, inspired him in some way to build uh, great buildings in Scotland. But the fact is that while he was in Denmark, he didn't go sightseeing to see all the great buildings. He made a beeline to meet uh, uh, Danish theologians, philosophers and scientists, and have long discussions and disputations with them, rather than in spending time uh, examining works of architecture. And when in Scotland, he was content for his teenage wife to commission the only significant new royal building of his Scottish reign at Dunfermline. And this uh, tall building here, you see, is the building that Anna of Denmark built at her house at Dunfermline, which is really the only piece of architecture commissioned during James's Scottish reign. Now, typical um, of James's attitude, I think, are the events surrounding the baptism of his first son, Prince Henry Frederick, which took place in August 1594. This is the one who who died um, and uh, was uh, replaced by his uh, brother, Charles. James uh, wanted his firstborn son to enter the world at Stirling, uh, where he himself, of course, had spent his childhood. Um, and uh, on arriving for her confinement, Anne uh, predictably found the royal rooms in such a poor state that she couldn't even stay there. Um, She had to move out and stay in a a house in the town, Um, but as this uh, baby prince was the nephew of the King of Denmark and potentially the heir to the English throne, his christening was an international diplomatic occasion. Almost too late, James realised that the chapel at Stirling was humiliatingly dilapidated and he ordered it to be rebuilt at huge speed for the baptism. Uh, It was rebuilt by his uh, master of works, James Shaw, um, and the king was very interested in it, but he wasn't interested in the architecture. He was desperately interested that it should be finished in time for this great international gathering of ambassadors. And this is what was constructed. Uh, In just under seven months, it was a sort of stage set. You can see on the right-hand side here. uh, It was a a great room that could be set up lined with tapestry. Uh, Tapestry was even put on the floor. Um, Canopies of state, rich uh, textile curtains, a pulpit draped with cloth of gold. And uh, externally, you can see um, there was this great sort of porch put on the outside, and the porch... Uh, I think, was uh, inspired by the porches in the castle of Kronberg. Uh, And you see this is a very, very bad picture, and I apologise for it, but you can see this great sort of porch um, here in Kronberg Castle and a sort of version of it here, because Shaw, the king's uh, mason, had accompanied him to Denmark um, on his trip a few years before. So, just before midnight... On the 26th of March 1603, covered in mud and blood, Sir Thomas Carey entered uh, the King's lodgings at Holyrood House and told James that he was now King of England. Two days later, uh, the official papers in his hand, he was proclaimed King of Great Britain and Ireland at the cross in Edinburgh. Uh, There were very few preparations needed and... um, Uh, A couple of days after that, James rode out of the gates of Holyrood House to make his way to his new kingdom. On the 1st of June, he was followed by the Queen and three of her children in a great cavalcade of coaches. They arrived in, uh, in London on the 11th of May. The city, swollen with visitors anticipating James's arrival, was gripped with the plague. And James was advised to move out west, and go to Windsor Castle, where, oh, this is just a gratuitous slide um, showing, paint, it's a painting done for James I, showing uh, the, the Scottish um, arms um, a, as they became the um, English the, the, the arms of, uh, of Great Britain. Um, uh, uh, and so he went out to Windsor Castle, which you see here. These are the royal lodgings uh, at Windsor. And um, on the 22nd of June, it was reported that he had inspected the castle and he so liked it that he would make this the place where his family would first assemble in England. On the 27th of June, he met Queen Anna at Toaster and he escorted her and his eldest son, Henry, to the castle where their daughter, Elizabeth, had already uh, arrived. And so Windsor was the royal family's first experience of an English royal palace and as a massive fortification it may have been more what the Scots king was expecting than the low rambling and unfortified domesticity of Whitehall, Hampton Court, Greenwich, Richmond and the others. But it was also at Windsor where the two courts, the Scottish court and the English court, first began to mingle. On July the 4th, Dudley Carlton described the arrival of the Queen and the Princess and their first days at Windsor to his correspondent John Chamberlain. And I quote, we were much troubled here with certain wrangling Scots who, wheresoever they came, would have meat, drink and lodging by strong hand. It was not only the courtiers who were trying to prove themselves, For James and Anna immediately set out to hunt in the park. And I quote, in the afternoon, she killed a buck out of a standing at which the king was so angry and discontented that she returned home without his company. Presumably because she shot the deer and he he missed. Um, Anyway, um, hunting uh, uh, at Windsor became a a common uh, occurrence and hunting became the great leitmotif of James's reign. Now, in the autumn of uh, 1604, just over a year into his reign, James I decided to found one of the most unlikely and unusual royal residences in the long history of the monarchy. This uh, was a building that posterity has sometimes called Royston Palace. But it looked nothing like a palace of popular imagination. Indeed, it was little more than a cluster of houses in the middle of a market town. And this unpalatial palace became one of King James's, if not King James's, absolutely most favoured residence. The scene of many important events in his reign. Although during the Commonwealth, uh, the royal residence was abolished and sold, the streets of Royston, bizarrely, still contain many of the former royal buildings. I'll show you some in a minute, many of them disguised as fish and chip shops. Um, indeed, enough of these royal buildings to reconstruct one, uh, this most unusual of royal palaces. And that is what I have done. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it now. So as James I made his way south from Scotland, uh, it, what started off as a sort of dignified progress turned into one massive great party. Um, he hunted and he uh, he drank and was feasted. And he eventually arrived in Royston on the Great North Road, effectively the A1, some 60 miles from his new capital. In the Middle Ages, uh, the town was half in Cambridgeshire and half in Hertfordshire, clustered round a marketplace and a modest but wealthy priory. The priory, of course, had been dissolved in 1536 And the Priory Church, which you see here, was transformed into the parish church. The residential buildings of the Priory were converted into a house by one of Henry VIII's gentlemen ushers, a man called Robert Chester. And it was in this uh, large house, part of the old Priory, that uh, James uh, was lodged in April 1604 with his boisterous revenue. At uh, Royston, the king entered Hertfordshire and he was met by its high sheriff who presented the uh, James with a fine horse and a rich saddle, um, but he only stayed one night. However, he liked the countryside around. He liked its potential for hunting and uh, Chester, who followed the king to London, was soon knighted and agreed, uh, no doubt under a certain amount of pressure, to rent the king, uh, the priory, for a year. And immediately, the Privy Council announced a 14-mile-wide cordon uh, round the town, reserving all types of game solely for the king's pleasure. Soon, a gamekeeper was appointed uh, to kill noisome vermin and ravenous fowls, so it said, and a pack of hounds was established in the uh, town in some new kennels. This sudden... uh, attention was unwanted by the people of Royston. Uh, There were about a 1,000 of them in 1604, and although compared to Elizabeth I, King James travelled light, it still took over 200 carts to move the court, and the town was flooded with people on the arrival of their sovereign. The king uh, was legally empowered to purchase cut-price food at the town market and to requisition carts from farmers at a reduced price. So feeding the king's swollen retinue in this little market town was bleeding it dry. In December 1604, the townsmen took desperate measures to persuade him to return to London. (laughs) Kidnapping his favourite hound, a beast called Jowler, they attached a note to his collar which the king discovered when the dog was released the following day. it said that this note said, "'Good Mr Jowler, we pray you speak to the king "'that it will please his majesty to go back to London, "'for else the country will be undone. "'All our provision is spent already, "'and we are not able to entertain him any longer.'" Part of the reason, of course, is that there were no proper facilities to support the court with all its officials, its servants and functionaries. And so the king decided to purchase a number of town centre inns and houses to accommodate both courtiers and servants. Royston was actually very well provided with inns, as were all the towns uh, on the Great North Road. Um, and the Cock Inn on the main road was chosen to be the king's house. The nearby by Greyhound Inn was assigned to his guards, and the thatched house between the two became the home of the king's privy kitchen. At first, James was content to reside in this converted inn, but in 1607, he ordered the construction of a purpose built block of privy or private lodgings containing a presence chamber and a privy chamber, the two principal rooms that you needed uh, in uh, a, a, a royal residence to conduct formal business. These uh, two rooms, his privy lodging, were still linked to the old inn where apparently the king still slept. The construction of this new lodging signalled the fact that the necessary business of governance would continue while the king was uh, staying in Royston. And indeed, a steady stream of ministers, officials and ambassadors made their way to Royston to conduct their affairs of state with the king. James's ongoing passion for Royston led in 1609 to a decision to enlarge the privy lodgings. The locals grumbled again. 400 loads of timber had to be moved into the town centre, It was harvest time and they objected to their carts being requisitioned. Work went ahead, nevertheless, and the new uh, brick frontage, one room deep, was built against the 1607 Privy Lodging, actually in the middle of the High Street. And over the next few years, this was embellished and decorated to become a fashionable brick townhouse with decorated gables, a clock tower and many obelisks. Uh, And it looked uh, behind uh, over a garden and an ornamental pond. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is my new reconstruction of Royston Palace. So here is Royston. This is the church. You can still see it. This street here still exists. And here are the inns. This is the original inn that the king uh, bought... There's another inn here, which is demolished. This is the block. There's a block of privy lodgings he built here, the first two rooms he built, and then latterly he built this block on the front of it. And you can see it is literally... This is the Great North Road here. It is literally in the middle of the road. Um, uh, All these other houses here, I'll talk a little bit more about these, were all bought bought up by the king for various things. um, Prince Prince Charles was lodged in these rooms here. Um, The king's guards were um, uh, lodged in here, and a cockpit built here for cockfighting. These are the stables. Um, some of these still exist. I'll show you them in a minute. The, the king's uh, coach was kept here. So it was literally the sort of centre of the town was essentially um, taken over by the king. Um, this house here was built by the king's office of works, the Royal Architects Department. The head of this was a man called Simon Basil, a Jacobean architect, whose reputation has been hugely overshadows by his successor in post Inigo Jones. Basil was an appointee of Robert Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury, the King's Principal Minister, and it's likely that Salisbury, who was obsessed with architecture, was behind the design of this new residence, as it was very similar in many ways to Cecil's brick-built Hatfield House, with its gables and cresting and clock tower, which was under construction at exactly the same time, not so very far Away, But by 1617, most of the centre of Royston uh, had been bought up by the king. Um, uh, As I was uh, describing, the the various buildings were uh, occupied by his offices. Um, There were were kennels. This is is a range of kennels here. This is a yard for the dogs. Um, But uh, quite a lot of these still survive. And this uh, little um, map I've done here shows uh, superimposed onto my reconstruction the buildings that uh, were around um, in, the, um, in the time of James I. And you can see half of the royal palace survives. Weirdly, the bit that was... Well, perhaps not weirdly, perhaps understandably, the bit was, that was built in the middle of the road was demolished. Um, and that's why the, the, the fireplaces are sort of exposed on the outside of the building, because they were originally in the middle of the building, if you see what I'm saying. Um, These buildings here, which I'll show you a photograph in a second, of the the stables, they're still there. These houses here um, were houses that were occupied by the King's Guard and occupied by his privy kitchen. This house was part of um, Prince Charles's lodgings. Uh, These uh, here were for members of his his household. So um, fish and chicken, (laughs) famous Royston eatery of great delicacies, um, was the, um, this is in fact the privy kitchen. And you can see here, it's very hard to photograph, it's in a narrow street. This is half the house, and here are the uh, chimneys that were originally in the middle of the house. This was originally thatched. And you can see the gap here, because you had the thickness of the thatch on top. Um, here are some of the um, King's stables. Um, today turned into offices, but you go inside, you have the open work roof that was all built by the Office of Works. Um, here, down this narrow street, you can see some of the rooms, uh, some of the buildings that were occupied by Prince Charles, the future Charles I. And you can see a little tiny little gap between the two here. Um, and uh, yeah, here you see it uh, with its pargeted front, much as it must have looked, to be absolutely honest with you, uh, when um, it was occupied by the Stuart court. So, um, on the face of it, uh, this building here which I show you a close-up of, and obviously uh, we don't have a picture of this building. We have very detailed uh, uh, building accounts, and I've reconstructed it from the building accounts, but we don't know it actually looked like that. All the elements that are there are things that are described the sundial, the cupola, etc. But the way it's put together has to have uh, is, is basically um, my, I't would say imagination, but my sort of reconstruction of it. So, on the face of it, Royston was a place designed to serve the king's obsession for hunting, but in reality, it was much more than that. James I did not enjoy public ceremonial or the stuffy formality established at court by the Tudors. His way, as we have seen from his life in Scotland, was much more informal and relaxed. He was also extremely bookish, and he was rarely uh, happier uh, indoors, than when closeted away in his library with a group of scholars. And while, of course, he did do his marital duty with Anna of Denmark, his queen, he was infinitely more uh, at home in the company of good-looking young men with whom he was surprisingly intimate in public. And so Royston became the ideal hideaway. Here, the constrictions of space allowed him to live much more privately than in London and without any of the fussy ceremonial that the Tudor court and the English court after that uh, uh, demanded. He would often uh, arrive um, here with only 40 or 50 attendants, which is very few people. Um, And you can see here in this uh, uh, sort of fantasy reconstruction of him arriving with his... uh, carriages with a small number of people and only once in all his many many stays in Royston did the Queen actually join him. Um, Unlike any normal royal residence there were no rooms assigned for the Queen's use Um, but there were apartments uh, for his male favourites and James loved the fact that Royston was close to Cambridge and a steady stream of theologians and clergymen came to preach and join in theological debates with the king. Books were sent from college libraries, and troops of um, Cambridge actors, Cambridge players, came and performed comedies for him in the presence chamber. So the king's life at Royston wasn't uh, the life of an ignorant country squire gorging himself on the hunting field, but of a poet, of a philosopher, and in a typical week... He would, uh, at Royston, he would maybe hunt for um, three days. The rest of the time was devoted to reading, writing, and the urgent business of state that could not be uh, put off. And to allow the king to govern from this uh, uh, sort of uh, outpost, um, an elaborate system of post horses was maintained, um, allowing royal messengers to take a steady stream of letters and papers to London, to Lord Salisbury's houses at Tibbles and Hatfield, and to the Queen and the Prince. And the horses, uh, like almost everything else, were purloined from the local populace. Um, and in fact, for one of Charles I's visits, uh, 150 horses were requisitioned for the royal messengers so that um, messengers could be sent uh, backwards and forwards. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, at Royston and the nearby House of Newmarket, which was very similar to this house here, we see how the first Stuart King liked to live and to govern. This was a revelation to a court and a country that had become used to the ways of the Tudors, who guarded their privacy and maintained their dignity in equal measure. James did neither of these, and did neither of them, in particular at Royston and actually at Newmarket. Prince Charles hated his father's ways and longed to re-establish the dignity of the Tudor monarchy. That dignity was not only behavioural, but it was architectural. And in my next lecture, we will see how in a state of extreme peril, Charles I made a magnificent court in the most unpromising of circumstances. Thank you very much.